Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine that's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is uh, Saturday, September the 16th, 2023. We are broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. Later on in our program, uh, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll feature the following dispatches on the continuing war inside the Republic of Sudan, which has been going on now for five months. The Republic of Namibia has issued a report on the rate of inflation inside the Southern African state. We'll have details on that as well. Also, Kenya uh, is facing uh, an even higher rate of inflation in that East African state. And the Ethiopian coffee uh, industry remains a major export for that Horn of Africa state. In the second hour, we look at the UAW strike, which unfolded on yesterday, September the 15th, uh, from the UAW International Headquarters based here in the city of Detroit, where we're broadcasting from. We'll have an address, a briefing uh, from uh, UAW International President Sean Fain uh, on the eve of uh, that uh, major industrial action. Finally, we examine the 60th anniversary of the Birmingham 16th Street Baptist Church bombing by the Ku Klux Klan. It took place 60 years ago on September the 15th of 1963, where four African-American girls and later two African-American boys were killed by racist violence. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. We'll take our musical interlude uh, with uh, the music from the East African state of Kenya from the 1970s. Let's listen in. Get out of here. 
Welcome back. And that was uh, music from the East African state of Kenya, a selection of uh, songs uh, from uh, the 1970s. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast for uh, Saturday, September 16th, uh, 2023. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. Right now, we want to move into our regular Pan-African Newswire segment. These are some of the headlines in today's Pan-African Newswire in the Republic of Sudan. And a bold threat uh, issued uh, just two days ago, the commander of the Sudan's paramilitary rapid support forces, Mohamed Hamdan Degalo, also known as Hameti, warned that if the army commanders formed a cabinet centered in Port Sudan, he would declare another government in Khartoum as his capital. In recent weeks, Al-Bahan, having left the headquarters of the General Command of the Armed Forces in Khartoum, established his base of operations in Port Sudan, the capital of the Red Sea State. This move has also prompted many federal government institutions to conduct their affairs from this coastal city. Some media reported that the Army, along with uh, political factions aligned with it, plans to establish an emergency government center in Port Sudan. However, this proposal has been met with resistance from political groups opposed to the ongoing conflict who advocate for the formation of a civilian transitional government. And a recording uh, shared on the site formerly known as Twitter, now known as X, Hamedi stated, quote, we have shown great patience with Al-Burhan's unilateral decisions. Despite their legitimacy, we will not permit anyone to represent Sudan and claim legitimacy. Should this situation persist or, or remnants attempts to form a government in Port Sudan, we will promptly initiate extensive consultations to establish a legitimate authority in areas under our control. With Khartoum as its capital, we will not tolerate the creation of an alternative seat of power, unquote. Many emphasized that the foremost priority should be the succession of hostilities and the reunification of Sudan rather than the establishment of a war-centric government in uh, Port Sudan. And you can read uh, more on what's happening in the Republic of Sudan over the Pan-African Newswire website. In the southern African state of Namibia, Annual inflation uh, stood at 4.7% last month, compared to 7.3% recorded this month a year ago. The country's statistics agency revealed uh, on Tuesday, according to the Namibia Statistics Agency, the country's August Consumer Price Index, the main gauge of inflation, showed that the major contributors to the inflation were food and non-alcoholic beverages, 1.9% percentage points. Alcoholic beverages and tobacco are 1.1 percentage points, and housing, water, electricity, gas, and other fuels, 0.7 percentage points. On a month-to-month basis, the inflation rate for August 2023 was 0.4% in comparison to the 0.3% registered during the preceding month. Meanwhile, the Southwestern African country Central Bank last month lowered its inflation projection for 2023 to an average of 5.6%, down 0.4% from its previous forecast due to an unexpected deflation in the transportation category. You're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In Kenya, fuel prices rose to an all-time high 
after the country's energy regulator increased retail prices effective on yesterday following recent tax increases, a move that will cause financial burdens to the citizens. The Energy Petroleum Regulatory Authority, the EPRA, in a statement released Thursday evening increased pump prices for super petrol or gasoline diesel and kerosene by different price margins in the latest review for September 15th to October 14th. EPRA said the prices of super petrol, which is mostly consumed uh, by private vehicles, will now increase to 1.44 U.S. dollars per liter. Diesel used to power commercial vehicles rose uh, to 1.37 dollar liters per liter, while kerosene, mainly used by poor homes for lightning and cooking, increased to 1.38 dollar liters. The average landed costs of imported super Petrol increased by 4.80% from six from 739.21 dollars per cubic meter in July to 774.67 dollars per cubic meter in August. Diesel increased by 12.52% from 701.99 dollars per cubic meter to 789.89 dollars per cubic meter, while kerosene increased by 19.79% from $690.58 per cubic meter to $827.26 per cubic meter, unquote, the EPRA said. Finally, uh, in the Horn of Africa state of Ethiopia, Tadese Degefa, a senior cupper at the S.A. Baragesh Private Limited Company, PLC, a renowned Ethiopian coffee firm and the birthplace of Coffee Arabica, is witnessing a surge of interest uh, among Ethiopian coffee producers and exporters to penetrate the rapidly growing Chinese coffee market. The GAFA emphasized the uniqueness of Ethiopian coffee beans, which are grown organically in the highlands without the use of chemicals or herbicides. He further underscored the crucial role of cupping in identifying the best coffee varieties, ensuring that the beans uh, meet the highest standards in terms of body size, flavor, aroma, and other qualities before they are shipped. With the cupping, we identify the flavor, the body, the acidity, and the other qualities of the coffee. The GAFA told this to the Genoa Chinese State News Agency in a recent interview. He argues that uniqueness of the Ethiopian coffee beans, as well as its cupping and production process, offers coffee exporters an important impetus towards penetrating the lucrative Chinese coffee market. With that, uh, we want to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment of our program, we would like to remind our listeners, the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, blogs, and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, all you need to do is go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. 
www.blogspot.com. If you would like to log on uh, to today's Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast and listen to the broadcast again or share the broadcast with other potential listeners, all you need to do is go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That is at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We will take another break and we'll be back with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week. Just in day, the day before and for it 
Welcome back. Uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal. Worldwide uh, radio broadcast, and that was uh, Love uh, from their third album entitled Forever Changes. That track uh, was called The Daily Planet. This is the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast. And just uh, two days ago, uh, the United Auto Workers uh, called for a strike against all three uh, auto companies, um, Ford, uh, Stellantis, and General Motors. We want to listen to a briefing from UAW International President Sean Fain. Let's listen in. And we'd like to remind our listeners that uh, we are broadcasting uh, from uh, the downtown Detroit area. And yesterday, uh, which was uh, September 15th, the first day of the strike, thousands of UAW members, supporters, and members of other unions demonstrated in downtown Detroit, held a huge rally right next to the International Annual Auto Show, which is a showcase uh, for uh, the auto owners, stockholders, and executives, Uh, yet uh, the workers are out on strike, and they do not, in fact, uh, have a living wage. Let's listen to this briefing by Sean Fain. Tonight, we're going to cover a lot of ground. We're going to review where we're at in big free bargaining, and we're going to discuss some of our possible plans for the upcoming days. At the very top of this, I want to acknowledge there's a lot of rumors, a lot of press reports, and talk about what we will or won't be doing. And I just ask that you stick with your union leadership for direction and clarity throughout this process. I also want to share some personal reflections with you about what this moment means for me personally as your president. But before I get into all that, I want to start things off like we always do by acknowledging our UAW family who are out there on strike. When we say our union's back in the fight, we mean it. It's not just big three members taking action. It's several other sectors. Just last night, 1,400 UAW members at Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan walked off the job. They tried to be heard at the bargaining table, but the CEO, who made $17 million last year, isn't listening. So they're taking it to the street to end tears, to stop outsourcing, and win fair pay. And our team in the Secretary-Treasurer's Office and Regions 1 and 1D are giving them full support. In Region 9, more than 100 members at UAW Local 644 started their strike this week at Dometic Group in Royersford, Pennsylvania. Dometic made $4 billion in profit last year, but some of our members there don't make a living wage. That's going to end with this strike. Also in Region 9, the grossly overpaid CEO at West Rock Packaging, David Sewell, still hasn't come to his senses. He raked in $22 million, but he still wants to slash the health benefits of, of all the members. Our members of Local 2326 in Dayton, New Jersey, are still standing strong, and we're going to beat this bully. And then we have the Farmer Strikers in Newton, Iowa, And they're still standing strong in their fight. They're going to win fair pay, quality time with their families, 
and decent sick leave that they deserve. As all these members will tell you, the UAW doesn't back down from a fight. We're willing to do what's necessary to win justice by any means necessary. So it's not surprising that as we get closer and closer to the contract expiration at the Big Three, we're seeing the companies and the corporate media increase their fear tactics. They want to say that our righteous fight for a higher quality of life for the working class would wreck the economy. They pretend that the sky will fall if we get our fair share of the quarter of a trillion dollars the Big Three has made over the past decade. But it's not just the economy. When they talk about that and they say we'll wreck the economy, it's not the economy that will wreck. It's their economy. It's the billionaire economy. That's what they're worried about. So let's talk facts. In this one chart, you can see the entire economic story of the big three over the past few years. In just four years, big three profits have shot up 65%. Business is booming. Over that same period, CEO pay has skyrocketed by 40%. They're absolutely rolling in the money. Big three spending on stock buybacks, money they lavish on Wall Street, is up a staggering 1,500%. It's literally off the charts. Average new car prices are up 34%. They're price gouging the hell out of the American consumer. Inflation's up 20%. So you better believe big free price gouging has a lot to do with that also. And auto workers' wages are up a mere 6%. So we've continued to fall further behind. And finally, and this is key, the cost of labor for the big three is around four to five percent of the total operations. So think about that. They could double our wages and not raise car prices and still make billions of dollars in profit. They spent more money enriching shareholders in a year than they spent on us in the entirety of the last contract cycle. They want to scare the American people into thinking the auto workers are the problem. We're not the problem. That chart is the problem. Corporate greed is the problem. And come tomorrow night, if they force us, we're about to make it the big threes problem. We said we're going to do things differently this round of negotiations, and I think we can all agree that we've kept that promise. This summer, we launched our union's first Big Three contract campaign, and we've seen firsthand that our membership is fed up and fired up. Since August 17th, there have been over 100 actions that local unions organized across our, across our, our union. The whole world is watching, from local to national to international press, talking about our righteous fight. And the public's taken notice. According to a recent Gallup poll, 75% of the public says they side with the UAW in our fight for justice at the Big Three. And believe me when I say that the companies have taken notice.
they wouldn't be coming to the table right now unless they really believed that they are staring down a well-organized and pissed-off workforce that's ready to do what it takes to win a strong contract. In bargaining, we've repeatedly told the companies from day one, September 14th is a deadline, not a reference point. We will not allow the big three to continue dragging out negotiations for months. The companies know what our priorities are, and we've been very clear. They've made a quarter of a trillion dollars in North American profits over the last decade. They nickel and dime our members every day. They price gouge the American consumer, and they squeeze the U.S. taxpayer for every dime they can get. The big three can afford to immediately give us our fair share. If they choose not to, then they're choosing to strike themselves, and we are not afraid to take action. We also shook things up at the bargaining table. We renamed our union's economic demands, formerly called the President's demands, and now we call them the Members' demands, because that's what they are. And in another change from the past, we've bargained those demands in front of your full national negotiating team, not behind closed doors like's happened in the past. We want our elected negotiators to be there and hear firsthand what the companies say about our members and what these executives think we're worth. We do that because we knew the companies liked to delay and because we had so many issues we wanted to address, we delivered our union's economic demands to the big three far earlier than has been done in the past. Every step of the way, we've been clear and we've been firm and timely in what we expect out of these negotiations. Unfortunately, the companies chose to squander the time we gave them. It took more than a month to get a response from each of them. Two of the companies refused to even respond to our demands until we filed federal labor charges against them. And when they did finally respond, what they gave us wasn't just outrageously unrealistic, it was an insult. Which brings me to another change we've made this round of negotiations. We've been transparent about the bargaining process with the membership. If we want to fight and we want to win like never before, we need to energize, inform, and organize our members like never before. That's why I want to take a few moments now to tell you where things stand with the negotiations. You, the UAW members, deserve to know where we've made progress and where we haven't made progress. And here's where things stand on our core members' demands. As far as tiers go, we, we want to end the broken, unjust system of tiers. We believe in equal pay for equal work, that no worker should be treated like they're a second-class citizen. We proposed a 90-day progression to top rate, the restoration of pensions and post-retirement health care for all. <clears throat> all three companies at this point have agreed to cut our progression to the top rate in half. The big three are now proposing a four-year progression 
down from the current eight years. All three companies have rejected our pension and retiree health care proposals. I find it funny and sad that Jim Farley, the CEO of Ford, told the press last night at the auto show that Ford had offered the elimination of tiers. That's not true. Tiers remain at Ford under their proposal. GM wants to continue the substandard pay for CCA and GMCH workers, and Stellantis wants to continue the substandard pay at Mopar. As far as wages, in our members' demands, we propose significant double-digit pay raises of 40% to match the salary increases of the big three CEOs. We did that to catch up with this brutal inflation and to make up for decades of falling real wages in this industry. Ford is now proposing a 20% raise over four and a half years. That's up from their initial 9% offer. GM is now proposing an 18% raise over that period. That's up from their initial 10%. And Stellantis is proposing 17.5% over four years. And they're proposing only lump sum bonuses for the salaried bargaining unit members. That's completely unacceptable. Altogether, we are seeing movement from the companies, but they're still not willing to agree on the kinds of raise that will make up for inflation on top of decades of falling wages. And their proposals don't reflect the massive profits that we've generated for these companies. Under the cost of living allowance, we propose the restoration of COLA, cost of living adjustments that would help auto workers keep up with inflation so we don't get left behind economically. Ford's now proposing returning to our old COLA formula, but with a diversion that is projected to provide less than a dollar of wage protection over the next four years. We need a COLA that meaningfully protects against inflation. GM, they're now where Ford was last week, offering what I call the Coke Zero formula. That's a COLA formula that's projected to provide zero in the way of actual raises. Stellantis is now offering us a choice, either the deficient COLA with no projected raises or lump sums that many workers won't receive. That's what they consider a choice. With profit sharing, we put forward a proposal to provide workers $2 for every million dollars spent by the companies on stock buybacks and special dividends. Again, if they've got money for Wall Street, they sure as hell have money for the workers making the product. All three companies are still trying to make major cuts to our profit sharing. Ford proposed a scheme that would have shrunk profit-sharing checks by 21% over the past two years. GM's proposal would have meant a 29% smaller check last year. And Stellantis finally gave us a proposal on this topic, but used an unknown internal calculation to significantly reduce profit-sharing. As far as temps go, we've proposed ending the abuse of so-called temps 
who were exploited at low wages for years at a time and denied the full benefits and wages despite working endless hours to keep these companies going. Temporary workers should be converted to full-time after 90 days with full pay, benefits, and profit sharing. Ford is now proposing the conversion of all current tips, current temps, I'm sorry, with 90 days continuous service to full-time in progression jobs. GM is still where they were last week, raising the minimum temp wage to $20 an hour, but maintaining inadequate benefits and no profit sharing. Stellantis is also wanting temps to have inadequate benefits, no profit sharing, and a $20 minimum wage with no pathway to full-time in progression jobs. Under job security, we're fighting like hell to keep good jobs in America and to put an end to plant closures that destroy our communities and tear our families apart. That's why we proposed strong job security language, creating the Working Family Protection Program to disincentivize the big three from killing jobs. We also proposed the right to strike over plant closures. All three companies have rejected our job security proposals. Stellantis now wants the right to close and sell 18 facilities, including various assembly and powertrain plants and parts depots. Under work-life balance, we all know that living in a plant seven days a week, 12 hours a day, isn't a living at all. We need real work-life balance. Auto workers deserve a life. That's why we're pushing for more paid time off and holidays. All three companies have now offered to recognize the Juneteenth holiday, an important historic day in our country and for our members as a paid holiday. On top of that, Ford has for the first time offered two weeks paid parental leave to our members. Other than that, all three companies have rejected our work-life balance proposals. Pertaining to retirees, we've proposed significant increases to retiree pay. As retirees, those who built our union have gone without an increase for well over a decade. All three companies continue to reject all of our proposals for retirement security. So there you have it. We're making progress at each of the three negotiating tables. But as you just heard, we're still very far apart on our key priorities. From job security to ending tiers, from cost of living allowance to wage increases, we do not yet have offers on the table that reflect the sacrifice and contributions our members have made to these companies. To win, we're likely going to have to take action. And just as we have approached our negotiations differently than we have in the past, we are preparing to strike these companies in a way they've never seen before. Before I get into that, I want to get a little bit personal with all of you. Um, you know, I've been reflecting here recently, and I've only been in this office 
as your president for five months. So many of you are still getting to know me and my approach to leadership. And I want you to understand where I'm coming from as we embark on this next phase of our fight. Those of you that don't know me, you know, one of the first things I do every day when I get up is I crack open my devotional for a daily reading and I pray. Uh, earlier this week on Saturday, um, I was struck with my daily reading, which seemed to speak directly to the moment we find ourselves in. And it was called Fear and Faith. And I found it interesting that that morning I was getting ready to head to uh, Solidarity House to meet with the negotiating committees and review this plan with them. And under that fear and faith daily reading, you know, the commentary I read talked about great acts of faith are seldom born out of calm calculation. It wasn't logic that caused Moses to raise his staff on the bank of the Red Sea. It wasn't a confident committee that prayed in a small room in Jerusalem for Peter's release from prison. It was a fearful, desperate band of believers that were backed into a corner. It was a church with no options, a congregation of the have-nots pleading for help. And never in those moments were they stronger. You know, at the beginning of every act of faith, there's often a seed of fear. And i got to tell you this. When I made the decision to run for president of our union, you know, it became a real test of my faith because I can tell you I sure as hell had doubts because I knew what I was taking on and I knew what I was up against. So I had to look myself in the mirror and I had to tell myself, either you believe it's possible to stand up and make a difference or you don't. And if you don't believe it, then shut up and stay on the sideline. I knew in my heart that the membership felt exactly like I did, that my union family was fed up with all the corrupt stuff that had went on in the past, and they were fed up with the company union philosophy. I chose to have faith in our members, and that's why I'm standing here today with all of you. I chose to be sworn in when I was became president um, on my grandmother's Bible, which I have here with me. I take this with me a lot of places. In 1933, at the height of the Great Depression, my grandmother's parents couldn't provide for their children any longer. So they dropped her and her brothers and sisters off at an orphanage. That orphanage gave her this Bible. And in the front of this Bible, there's an inscription that has my grandmother's name and says, Christmas 1933, Halston Orphanage. You know, years later, my grandparents were part of the millions of families who moved to the Midwest to work for auto companies and seek out a better life. Like my grandfather's pay stub that I carry with me every day, I'm proud to have inherited my grandma's Bible and her faith. You know, and I, I want to share with you another powerful verse from Scripture that really speaks to me in this moment. It's Matthew 17:20 20 and 21. 
where it says, For truly I tell you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. For years, as a member of the UAW, and even during this current round of bargaining, I found it heartbreaking to read comments from members and retirees that have such low expectations. How many times have we been told we'll live to fight another day? I've read comments such as, you can't get cost of living back, it's gone forever. I've heard comments about, you can't bargain for retirees. I've read comments about how you're asking for too much. That's company talk. And it comes from a mindset that's a direct result of company unionism. It comes from the worst of our union's history of setting expectations low and settling even lower. And for many of us who have yet to see our union fight hard and win big, it's hard to imagine what that would look like. Making bold demands and organizing to fight for them is an act of faith. It's an act of faith in each other. And yes, these corporations are mountains. But together, we can make these mountains move. I have always believed that UAW members serve a higher power. We have a mission and a calling. We fight not only for the good of our union or for the good of our members and our families. We fight for the good of the entire working class and the poor. And I believe great things are possible, but only if we're able to shed our fear. The only limits we have to worry about are the limits we put on ourselves. Only if we stop letting the billionaire class define what's possible and what's realistic. They have spent decades convincing us that we are weak, convincing us that it's futile to fight, convincing us that we should be grateful for the scraps that they decide to give us. I'm here to tell you those days are behind us, and today we're taking the next step in leaving that past behind. But to do that again, we got to have faith. we got to have faith in each other. I'm secure in every decision we've made because I have faith in our members. And I know, just like that mustard seed, if we have the faith of a mustard seed, we will move this mountain. The idea that an everyday auto worker can take on the loftiest billionaire, that if we work hard and we work together, we can move these mountains. So I have to ask all of you, do you have faith? Are you ready to stand up together and move that mountain? Nobody's coming to save us. Nobody can win this fight for us. Our greatest hope and our only hope is with each other standing together. And I tell you this, I'm at peace with the decision to strike if we have to because I know that we're on the right side in this battle. It's a battle of the working class against the rich, the haves 
versus the have-nots, the billionaire class against everybody else. And again, in talking about that, this, this class warfare, people accuse us and say this is class warfare. There's been class warfare going on in this country for the last 40 years. The billionaire class has been taking everything and leaving everybody else to fight for the scraps. And when I talk about that, there's one more piece of scripture I, I like that reminds me of in Matthew 19, 23, 24, which states, It is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Why is it easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God? I have to believe that answer, at least in part, is because in the kingdom of God, no one hoards all the wealth while everybody else suffers and starves. In the kingdom of God, no one puts themselves in a position of total domination over the entire community. In the kingdom of God, no one forces others to perform endless, back-breaking work just to feed their families or put a roof over their heads. That world's not the kingdom of God. That world is hell. Living paycheck to paycheck, scraping to get by, that's hell. Choosing between medicine and rent is hell. Working seven days a week for 12 hours a day for months on end is hell. Having your plant closed down and your family scattered across the country is hell. Being made to work during a pandemic and not knowing if you might get sick and die or spread the disease to your family is hell. And enough is enough. It's time to decide what kind of world we want to live in. And it's time to decide what we're willing to do to get it. Before I go into the strike plan, I do want to tell you this too. I'm a huge fan of John Wooden, who was a one of the greatest basketball coaches in history, college basketball. Won 10 national championships. And there's a, a pyramid of success that he developed um, with his players, that he taught his players you know, how to find success and how to reach the pinnacle, which they did multiple times. The top of that pyramid is a... Uh, is one of my favorite parts of the pyramid where it talks about being at your best when your best is needed. And that's what this strike plan to me is all about. The strike plan we're about to roll out is driven by faith. It's driven by the faith that together we can and will move mountains. It's driven by the belief that being at our best when our best is needed will get us there. And I want to start by saying this strategy, it isn't just my idea. This is a culmination of the work of your international executive board leadership and a lot of staff reps and a lot of our bargaining committees. A lot of our staff and a lot of our teams, such as our amazing legal team, our research team, our organizing team, our communication team, 
our political team, the Secretary Treasurer's office, and many other staff. So let's get into it. Like I said, we're going to be doing things differently this time around. First of all, for the first time in our history, we may strike all three of the big three at once. Our message to the companies was clear. If we don't have a fair contract by midnight on Thursday night, we will strike. The second big difference is the way we're going to strike is going to be very different. In fact, we're inventing a whole new way to strike. And we're calling it the stand-up strike. The name stand-up strike, of course, recalls the movement that built our great union, the sit-down strikes of 1937. Just as in the 1930s, we're living in a time of stunning inequality throughout our society. We're living in a time where our industry is undergoing massive transformations. And we're living in a time where our labor movement is redefining itself. In the spirit of the sit-down strike, the stand-up strike will keep the companies guessing. It's going to rely on discipline, organization, and creativity. The stand-up strike begins with all of our locals, from parts distribution centers to assembly plants, maintaining a constant strike readiness. It's really important that we're clear on this point. We will not strike all of our facilities at once. We will strike all three companies, a historic first, initially at a limited number of targeted locations that we will be announcing. Then, based on what's happening in bargaining, we're going to announce more locals that are going to be called to stand up and strike. These locals will join those that are already on strike so that our strike at each company will continue to grow over time. And again, I want to be clear. Our goal is not to strike. Our goal is to reach a fair agreement. But if the companies continue to bargain in bad faith or continue to stall or continue to give us insulting offers, then our strike is going to continue to grow. At the beginning, a select few are going to strike, and then as needed, more are going to join in. We're going to hit where we need to hit, and when we need to hit, we're going to hit to move mountains. If your local is not named, then you are not yet on strike. We will communicate with regional directors and local leadership who will walk their membership out if and only if they are called to do so. So the plan now is that this Thursday at 10 p.m. Eastern Time, I'm going to be hosting a Facebook Live and announcing which locals are being called on to stand up and go out on strike starting at midnight if we don't have a deal. As soon as those locals are named, all locals will be notified about whether they are to stand up and strike or to maintain strike readiness through rallies, supporting active picket lines, red shirt days, and organizing our communities. 
If your local is called to go on strike, you will walk your members out according to your local leadership's directions. If your local is not called to go on strike, you will continue working while continuing to organize actions. And I want to be clear about this point. These are strikes over the national agreement, not local agreements. After the first round of locals going out on strike, we will be calling on other locals to go on strike based on what is happening in bargaining. We are maintaining maximum flexibility to make the decision on who all is going out next, which gives us a lot of options. We can call on multiple locals to stand up and go out on strike all at once, or we can call on locals one at a time. And we can do this multiple times a week or only once a week. This is going to provide your national negotiators with incredible leverage at the bargaining table. If the companies give us an insulting offer, if they keep playing games, if they refuse to bargain in good faith, then we have the power to keep escalating and keep taking plants out. To prepare, we're going to be lining up several possible locals at once. Local leaders will receive notification ahead of time that they are one of the locals in the queue that may soon be asked to stand up and go on strike. But the final decision won't be made until soon before the announcement. Your local will only strike if you are called by national leadership to do so, and this will be explicit and clear. Local leadership will walk members out if they are called to stand up and go on strike. And again, if your local is not called, you are to keep working, and this is extremely important. You're going to be working under an expired agreement not an extension. We will not be extending the contracts. This is also a first. We have resources available on our website explaining what it means to work under an expired agreement. And I know this is new for us, but there are lots of unions that follow this tactic. But this plan only works if the locals who are called to strike and do so and if the locals who are not yet called do not strike and keep working. This is going to create confusion for the companies. It's going to keep them guessing on what might happen next. And it's going to turbocharge the power of our negotiators. To be as effective as possible, it's important that the locals that are not on strike keep organizing actions. Keep organizing red shirt days, parking lot rallies, protests, and community events. Show the companies that you are ready to go on a moment's notice. So if we don't have an agreement at each of the big three by midnight on Thursday night, your local will do one of two things. If and only if you are called directly by national UAW leadership, you will walk your local out on strike and maintain the picket line. If you are not called to strike, your members will keep working and you'll continue to organize rallies, sticker days, and red shirt days. You'll do everything you can without stopping work to show the company and the public that you are ready. But you'll not strike until called. So we'll continue working with expired agreements, and we'll discuss that in a moment. So just to recap, 
at midnight on Thursday, tomorrow night, we will be prepared to strike the big three using a new tactic we're calling the stand-up strike. The stand-up strike is our generation's answer to the sit-down strike of the 1930s, and it is time, it is long past time, to stand up for the working class, to stand up for our communities, and to stand up against unchecked corporate greed. Like the sit-down strike, this strike requires us to be very disciplined. Again, that means if your local is not called, then you are not to go on strike. But just because you keep working doesn't mean you stop organizing. We do want you to organize flying squadrons and turn out members to picket lines at striking plants. We do want you to talk to the media and connect your own personal stories to our fight to end tears, to win COLA, and stop plant closures. But don't stop working unless you're explicitly called on to stop. And I want to make one other point about this strategy very clear. I know there's a hunger out there among some of you to go on strike in every plant and facility all at once at all three of these companies. And believe me when I tell you, I completely understand that desire. Um, if there's one part of me, you know, that says do something and don't do something, there's a part of me that's, that really wants to do that. But I do believe the beauty of the stand-up strike is that it provides us the maximum flexibility moving forward to have the most effective means of striking that we can put forth to get the best result we need for our membership. We are keeping all of our options open as we continue to bargain with the companies. And I want to be clear about this. An all-out strike is still a possibility. We're keeping all of our options open. We're not just going to stand by as corporate executives and the rich continue to make extraordinary profits while the rest of us continue to get left further and further behind at the big three and beyond. Instead, we're going to stand up and make history together. In the event we go on strike at midnight on Thursday night, something else we're going to do differently. We will not be bargaining on the 15th. Your International Executive Board, myself, your Vice Presidents, National Negotiators will be joining you in action. For those of you that want to come to Detroit, we're going to be holding a mass rally on Friday at the UAW Ford Joint Trust Building right downtown. We selected this site because it's one of the many locations that the Big Three have proposed to close during negotiations. And we've been clear with Ford, we won't accept any concessions in this round of negotiations. Our jobs are off limits. So we're asking everyone to plan to be in downtown Detroit, if you can, at 4 o'clock, and the rally will start at 5. Again, that's this Friday, September 15th. We want to show our strength and unity on the first day of this historic action. Several regions are arranging for bus travel from regional offices. 
and we'll have more information on this out to all of you very soon. If you cannot be in Detroit and you can go to one of the locals that are picked to go on strike, we encourage you to go there. If you can't do that, we hope that you'll be organizing your own rallies and actions for Friday and throughout the weekend. Whether your local is on strike or on notice, we need all hands on deck. And tonight, I just want you all to reflect on how far we've come. I want you to talk to your families, talk to your friends, and to your union family. I want you to talk about what this fight means for you, for your future, and for your community. And tomorrow night, I want you to be ready to stand up. I want you to be ready to stand up for your family. I want you to be ready to stand up for your community. I want you to be ready to stand up for future generations. And I want you to be ready to stand up against corporate greed. So let's stand up and make history together. So I know this was a long talk, and I appreciate everyone taking time. There are over 29,000 people that I've seen that have been participating on this so far. You know, this is our defining moment, and it's time we go to work. I'm going to try to glance through a few comments, and I mean, unfortunately, there are literally thousands of comments right now, but... Um, You're listening to Sean Fain, international president of the UAW, uh, in his address outlining the strike strategy for the UAW, uh, the stand-up strike. And uh, this address uh, was delivered on the eve of uh, the work stoppage, which uh, commenced um, uh, less than 48 hours ago. You're listening to the Pan-African... I'm just glancing through here. I see some people saying we should all go out at once, and I understand that, and that's still an option that we have. Uh, but as I said, uh, this isn't just a decision made on a whim. This is a decision made by a lot of people on this team and in our leadership that have really looked at all the options and, and tried to figure out the best way to strategically make this happen. Um, The uh, rally uh, referenced here took place uh, last night uh, outside the International Auto Show in downtown Detroit. Thousands of workers uh, rallied. Uh, there was a march through downtown, and the uh, rally was addressed uh, by uh, the new uh, UAW International President, uh, Sean Fain. Uh, there were people there from various uh, regions of uh, the United Auto Workers, uh, from other uh, states. I see a lot of good comments on here, you know, supporting about walking off midnight. Um, I mean, I agree. All three companies will be on strike. We've never done that before. Um, you know, we have to be smart. Um, at the end of the day, the goal here is to get the best contract we can for our members, and that's that's where we're heading. Um trying to glance through some of these. I'm sorry, it's they're, they're popping on so quick I can't keep up.
the contradictions were immense. So I don't know why I'm having trouble seeing this. I said CCA. Okay. And, you know, again, we talk about ending tears. It's one of our big battles. And, of course, CCA, GMCH, the subsystems people. You know, we have a lot of problems between the the big three companies. And when we talk about ending tears, that's a part of it. So um, we've got to stand together in this fight. All right, I'm going to jump off here. I appreciate everybody getting on. Um, we were at, uh, like I said, approaching 30,000 people. It's great to see the support. Um, you know, we're down to the wire. Um, we are, you know, a day and a half away from the deadline, so uh, there's a lot that has to happen between now and then, and uh, the companies need to come to the pump, and uh, we'll see how the next uh, 24 hours plus plays out, and uh, we'll keep you all informed, and we'll keep moving forward. So let's stand up and let's make history. Thanks a lot. That was uh, United Auto Worker International President Sean Fain uh, giving a briefing uh, in regard to the background uh, for uh, the call for the uh, industry-wide strike. Also, uh, he referred to his own personal uh, background as well as uh, what is happening now. Uh, in regard to the strategy that's being utilized called the stand-up strike uh, in uh, this labor action. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast uh, for Saturday, September the 16th, uh, 2023. Uh, We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'll take a break. We'll be back with our concluding segment.
Welcome back. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. That was uh, the track entitled Private Number by Judy Clay. Just uh, 60 years ago on yesterday, September the 15th, uh, 1963, uh, there was the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in uh, Birmingham, Alabama, where immediately uh, four African-American girls were killed. Uh, Later that day, uh, two other African-American boys were killed as well. And this was uh, not even a month after the historic March on Washington, which took place on August 28th of 1963. Birmingham had been the center of a mass movement uh, during the spring of 1963 that had uh, national implications uh, taking place alongside other uh, mass movements in Danville, Virginia, uh, Cambridge, Maryland, Somerville, Tennessee, and even uh, uh, cities uh, in the North and Midwest. Let's uh, listen uh, to a report on developments in 1963 in the United States. Inhuman and horrible. Is that enough? Well, I'm real, real sorry about what happened yesterday. I think that we 
should have Birmingham like it's always been, and I think we all should pray and get this thing over with among both white and colored. Disgust. That's it. Just disgust. Well, we were just com completely distraught of the whole situation. We were terribly hurt that this happened here in Birmingham. We hope the people of the nation realize that not all the people in Birmingham are like that. It hurt us very much. I think the, uh, as far as the bombing, the, it's a shame that the kids were involved. The, uh, the parents or the leaders of the group should have been the one that the thing was focused against rather than the kids. That, uh, they're innocent, and uh, there's no reason in the world to do any damage to uh, kids. Uh, the, the leaders are the ones that uh, attention should be focused on. They ought to catch them and put them in jail, Any, whoever it is. At once, I hope they do anyway. In April 1960, Harrison E. Salisbury, Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter for the New York Times, flew to Birmingham, Alabama for a stay of three days. On April the 12th and 13th, the New York Times published articles by Salisbury, datelined Birmingham. The reporter wrote that fear and hatred gripped the city, that every channel of communication, every medium of mutual interest, every reasoned approach, every inch of middle ground has been fragmented by the emotional dynamite of racism, so wrote Harrison Salisbury. The two articles resulted in a libel suit filed by Birmingham's three city commissioners and by a detective against the New York Times seeking damages totaling $1,600,000. April the 14th, the Birmingham morning newspaper, the Post-Herald, reprinted the Salisbury articles. Reaction was immediate. How could a man know whether there was a reign of terror? He mentioned the rope, the knot, the whip, the razor, all sorts of instruments of violence and torture. If that existed, surely someone other than Harrison Salisbury would have observed it. Uh, no, I, I can't find any explanation of a top-notch newspaper man like Mr. Salisbury writing a piece like that. I agree wholeheartedly with Mr. Salisbury. And I realize I'm saying that uh, as a resident of Birmingham, I live here, uh, a person can be terrorized. I've gone through it, and maybe it's natural for me uh, being a leader. But there have been persons who were not Negroes or who were not uh, overt leaders, as I am, outspoken, who've been terrorized. I have never seen fear in Birmingham that has been expressed in the northern newspapers. We're not afraid of anything. If we are afraid of anything, perhaps it's that outside agitators attempting to cause trouble, attempting to sell newspapers, will cause trouble that actually doesn't exist. We know of no fear, no great fear for our lives, for reprisals. I can tell the people of America, don't live here. White, black, red, yellow, green. Not under this. Life isn't worth living.
CBS reports came to Birmingham to chronicle the liable action between Birmingham and the New York Times. After this case has been tried in the proper courts, we shall hope to report on that action and in so doing to examine the libel laws in this country, how they protect the rights of the individual and the freedom of the press. Tonight, however, we report on the background and mood of Birmingham by letting some of the people of that community speak of and for their city. Now, here is CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent Howard K. Smith. Birmingham is called the Magic City, having grown to its present size in 75 years. It is also called the City of Churches, with over 700 churches of all denominations. Birmingham has good homes and slums as other cities have. It boasts a highly regarded medical center and an excellent museum. Industrially, the city is dominated by a heavy concentration of steel mills. Birmingham is the largest segregated city in the South. Every phase of activity, business, cultural, and social, is segregated. For residents, both white and Negro, the most memorable date in recent years is May the 17th, 1954, the day when the Supreme Court of the United States, in a unanimous decision, handed down a ruling that segregation in any public school in the United States is a violation of the American Constitution. The population of the metropolitan Birmingham area is 640,000. Of those, 235,000, more than a third, are Negroes. David Lowe, who has been working on this report for nine months, first interviewed John Temple Graves, lecturer, author, newspaper man, a columnist in the Birmingham Morning Newspaper, the Post-Herald, said to be the voice of the segregated South. Uh, isn't it possible that a greater media medium than the New York Times uh, could tell the truth about this city? Uh, I'm amazed to find that in your mind and in the mind of so many, we are the villain of the southern peace, that this is the, the worst city in the south for oppression of the races, for violence between the races. We are honestly amazed at, at that uh, thought, that honest thought in the, on the part of people like yourself, and you're an honest man. Uh, it isn't so, and yet how can we have the thing denied, uh, not through one newspaper, not through winning a libel suit against the uh, New York Times, but we can have it uh, denied if a vast uh, thing like uh, television undertakes to be fair, as I think you mean to be fair to us. And I don't mean that you will take our side necessarily. Uh, we are guilty of all sorts of sins, sins against the Negro, sins against economy, and many sins, and yet no more uh, proportionally than other parts of the country. Uh, it's simply that when anything happens here or in the South, they say, oh, that's the South. If it happens in Chicago, they say that's a murder on, um, on Main Street in Chicago. But if it happens in Birmingham, oh, that's the, the bloody, violent uh, South. Colonel William S. Pritchard, a leading attorney in Birmingham. Substantially all of the Negroes in Alabama and perhaps in the South, Deep South, have the same background. They were all savages in Africa. Their parents uh, sold them into slavery, or their chieftains sold them into slavery. They were brought into this country 
uh, in a state of savagery. They didn't speak the language of the country. They had no concept of the economy of the country. They had no concept of working in order to obtain a livelihood. Now, their concept, when they were hungry, was to roam the jungles of Africa and to live in the forest and the fruits of the forest and the meats that they secured there. When they were brought into this economy, it was entirely strange and different from them. And they had to be reconciled to it. I have no doubt that the Negro basically knows that the best friend he's ever had in the world is a southern white man. He'd do the most for him, always has, and will continue to do it. But uh, when they, uh, from northern agitators, are spurred on to believe that uh, they are the equal to the white man in every respect and should be just taken from savagery and put on the same plane with the white man in every respect, that's not true. He shouldn't be. It hurts the Negro. And that feeling has brought about this estrangement. And, and that feeling is brought about by outside sources, not by the Negroes residing in the South, my judgment. Well, Colonel, in view of the fact that possibly the federal government will ask the city of Birmingham at least to integrate their school system, what do you think will happen when that comes through? I don't believe it'll ever happen. Uh, there would be a measure of violence in Birmingham, in my opinion, I regret to say. There's a lot of white people here that say this that even the dumbest farmer in the world knows that if he has white chickens and black chickens, that the black chickens do better if they're kept in one yard to themselves, the white chickens do better if they're kept in a separate yard to themselves. They each do better under those conditions. And that a farmer who would mix the white and the black chickens would be the dumbest man in the world. The club is a gathering place for society in Birmingham. One of the cultural leaders of the community is Mrs. George Bridges. We've just been a saturated solution of culture. We're bursting at the seams with it right now as we had the Festival of Arts, which includes all of our arts. You see, it's been a, almost a three weeks continuous activity. It started uh, as a showcase for our local artists to show what they could do and to give them some encouragement. Because my theory is that the Southern way of life is more conducive to creative activity. But we have a terrific erosion of culture to the North. And this could... Uh, Festival of Arts is sort of like the little CCC they had during Roosevelt's regime, you know, to stop the corrosion, erosion of the soil, to give our own artists some encouragement and a little financial help. Mrs. Bridges, are you personally aware of prejudice in Birmingham? Well, of course, I guess there's a certain amount of prejudice, but I'm not aware of there being much prejudice. Nothing like the uh, people of the North seem to think. Among my friends, we don't seem to have any particular prejudice. I was uh, Alabama chairman for UNICEF, and UNICEF was sending out an international exhibition of children's artwork from all the children of the world, even African children. So I had the idea of comparing it with our local children and getting all of the local schools to send in schoolwork. And a boy that won was, happened to be a Negro that had come from the Negro schools. And then he and his mother and uh, family went down to see his exhibit. It was when we were exhibiting at the library. And it's against the city ordinance for the Negro people to come into the white library. So he was stopped at the door and not allowed to come. And they called me in great distress. I didn't know up until then who it was had won. But I had no trouble in arranging special permission for him and his family to go in and see the picture. It was just a question of making a phone call and explaining the situation. And I think art, and, and culture belongs to, to everyone. On, on that level, I don't think we have very little prejudice. Now, I admire the Negro race very much. They have made more progress than any race ever has in, in a shorter length of time. It's simply phenomenal to think the progress they have made. 
and many of them are doing fine creative work. In fact, I think that's one of the contributing factors to our creativeness in the South is the sort of uh, joyousness of the Negro. You know, the, he was happy and, and uh, uh, contented. You don't hear that anymore. And as a girl, we used to hear Negroes singing all the time. They just walked down the street and singing. And uh, the servants in the house would sing. The gardeners would sing. And they were just all like in Spain or Mexico is it now. But you, I haven't heard a Negro just spontaneously break into song in four or five years. And that, that's bad because they're not happy and we're not happy about it. William Mobley, a police reporter for 19 years, relates the incident about a Negro man named Judge Aaron. Judge Aaron is a Negro man at that time, 32 years of age. He and a girlfriend were walking along a country road uh, late at night when these two, uh, I mean, these six Klansmen came by in an automobile, threw him in the car, carried him to a clan hideout and uh, castrated him, put uh, turpentine in the wounds and uh, threw him out uh, on the outskirts of the city and left him there where he was found by a couple of police officers and taken to the hospital. The turpentine, which evidently had been used for uh, additional pain to the victim, uh, according to the doctors who uh, treated him at the hospital, said possibly saved his life because it cauterized uh, the wounds and uh, kept him from bleeding to death. Why did they do this? They never could explain why. They uh, met and agreed to uh, go out and do something. So they looked around in several uh, places, according to the testimony that came out in the four trials that followed. And uh, they never told why. They never, and uh, Judge Aaron was just an innocent victim. It could have happened to any one of uh, 50,000 or more Negroes in Birmingham. This crime took place on September the 2nd, 1957. The perpetrators of the crime against Judge Aaron were convicted after four trials and were sentenced to long terms. Hugh A. Locke, an attorney, formerly a Chancery Court judge. I think the racial unrest in Birmingham is existing largely in the minds of people outside of Birmingham. Uh, Birmingham, for instance, has never had a lynching. Not one. They have never, in their whole existence, had any racial trouble that amounted to anything appreciable, such as they have in Chicago, had in Detroit, or Buffalo, such as they're now having in Washington. We've never had those troubles. Your Honor, do you think the northern people understand the south and the southern people? The difference in the south is hard for you to understand. I was, for instance, I was born on one farm, and about uh, four or five miles from there, at my aunt's farm, there was a nigger born the same day I was born. <laughs> Jack Finney. And, and why that nigger would do anything, I, that, that nigger would do anything for me, and I'd do anything for him. 
And we, that's just the way we feel about it. There's nothing wrong with good people in the North or in the West or in the East or in the South. But there is now has been created a genuine prejudice and friction. And it is dangerous, especially in the view of the fight Russia is making. I have an old man that's been working for me a long time, and it's just a little thing. But uh, my wife mentioned he's a yard man. My wife mentioned something about some flowers being very beautiful. He immediately said, they come from Russia. Now, that was very significant to me, that good old man, loyal as can be to me and my family. We trust him. But nevertheless, somebody had been telling him that the beautiful things and the good things came from Russia. I would like you to explain to us the workings of the White Citizens Council. Well, there's nothing secret about it. And, uh, but it is an organization of men who were native-born Americans. They reached the conclusion that everybody was organized but them, and that they were not even getting the privileges that most people were, or they were afraid that a lack of organization would create a, 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 just a misbalance. The Citizens Council is an organization of those citizens. Now, we are in a cold war with Russia over communism. The South is intensely with America in that fight. We, we uh, I think as much or more, I'm not comparing now, but the South and Alabama, let's say Alabama, I don't know all of the South, but I say Alabama is intensely against communism, and they are intensely for the preservation of the freedom that our Constitution has given. Now, your Citizens Council, let's speak of it in the broad sense. Your Citizens Council is here to speak for the native-born American. Would you say that uh, any members of the Jewish community can join the White Citizens Council? No, I don't think they do. It's, a, it's, a, it's the American, strictly. Birmingham is proud of its white colleges. Birmingham Southern College and the newer Howard College are both in the metropolitan area. The people in the north don't seem to realize that here in the south for a long time we've had a certain way of life. This way of life has been instilled in us from the time we were born until the time we die. Now, my grandparents and my parents are more prejudiced than I am. That simply because they have, they have lived this way of life much longer than I have. The people in the North fail to realize that you cannot change a way of life overnight. This way of life is a part of us, and although it might not be right, it will take time to overcome. And the more they try to force us into doing something, 
then the worse the reaction will be because no one likes to be forced into anything. I don't believe in the mixing of the races, and I don't care what anybody says. I might be prejudiced. I don't know. I probably am. But, but I can't conceive of a society that would put their children through school from kindergarten or the first grade all the way through college and then expect them not to have mixing of the races and I am against this entirely and that is the principal reason that I am against integration because I do not want to see the races mixed. Well, so much has been set on making the Negro education equal to our education by just pouring more money into, into their schools, and I mean, in quotes, Negro schools. And I don't believe that no matter how much money you put into these schools that you can make them uh, altogether equal in quality to ours because they do not have the opportunities of, say, being here at Southern with us and, and knowing us, and, and it just cannot be the same because they're off by themselves in a little group just completely segregated and to me it seems as though when I think of myself perhaps being in their place as if they're not really part of our society that, that they're just there sort of in suspension and you did ask us do we know these people that we're talking about and I think that, that right there is a good point because we don't I don't think there are any of us maybe here that who know Negro college students and if we could have them here at our school we we have lots of foreign students here but but people right around the corner we completely ignore and if we had them here we could know their problems and we would get to know them as people and not as a race I think that this um, business about the Negro being inferior is a vicious circle People who are economically depressed uh, don't have the cultural opportunities. They don't uh, have the health opportunities. When you don't have enough to eat, you uh, don't feel yourself uh, interested in the philosophies of mankind. You're interested in getting something more to eat. And I think that as long as we keep the Negro on the level that he is, he's going to stay there. I'm afraid that it's impossible without the breaking down of, of the barriers for the Negro to raise themselves economically and socially. The colored man knows where he stands. The white man knows where he stands. In the North, I wonder, I've traveled in the North having served in the, in the Army. The colored man didn't know where he stood. Certainly, we have signs saying colored and white at, at eating places, at other places. The, the colored man knows that he is not to enter there, that there is segregation. In the North, he never knows. I think that uh, this is a personal convic conviction that I have. I think that the, uh, the shame of the, of the whole problem of integration or what have you, whatever you want to call it, it's a shame that it will not come in the church first. I think that part of the problem is the conflict between what we ought to do and what we want to do. In principle, I am definitely against segregation. But yet, when I see the standards of the Negroes around me, especially in the South, I can't say that I want to go to school with them and want to be held back because their background is not as good as mine. And when I see their homes, I can't say that I want to eat in the same restaurant with them. But yet, as far as principles, 
I feel that I, as a white person, am responsible for their conditions by keeping them economically low and keeping their educational standards down. So I feel that laws are necessary to make me do what I ought to do, even though I don't want to right now. Mr. Hugh Comer, an industrialist, civic leader, and for more than 30 years, teacher of a famous Sunday school class. A lot of people look on uh, the conditions in the South as Neanderthal. And, you know, that's, that's a long time ago when that's pretty rugged. But um, I don't think so. I think that this South country, as uh, several years ago, realized its potential for greatness. Uh, as a matter of fact, our congressman there, uh, Sam Hobbs, that was his theme song. Southerners get ready for greatness because the South is making its pitch. And now down here, the people that I know, um, well, you can look around you and see there that the buildup of this South country didn't come through sluggard and mess julep breakers and that kind of business. It came by the result of men working and working hard and working for the community. We want to build up through our own efforts, not organized efforts, because organized efforts thrive on tension. You know that and I know that. If we could, if we could be left alone, we would create a social and an economic climate. I'm quoting them. In which people such as ourselves, any cause, could progress and continue to survive. Uh, I did hear, Mr. Comer, that you have a special theory, theory of your own concerning increasing the buying power of the Negro in Alabama. That's right. Now, if um, we've got approximately a million Negroes in Alabama, well, naturally, you can pick out any number of dollars that you want. But I'll say $10. If you would increase the purchasing power of these million people in our state, $10 a year, you have then created right here in Alabama a $10 million market. If we can get these people to where they'll buy from us, because I sell, you know, and I sell what they buy. They buy mattress ticking, they buy this cloth, they buy these, uh, these underwear. In other words, the, the $10 million would, would, advance, would advantage me, particularly with all the others, if I'm sake. Or nobody but nobody has got their finger on this fellow because of his color. It's what can he do? You know, the day of the wool hat is gone. You can't turn the machinery that we, that we buy here today over to an ignorant, clumsy clown. He's got to have a skill. He's got to have intelligence. He's got to have an intellect. And he's got to want to do it himself. Bishop C.C.J. Carpenter, a resident of Birmingham for 25 years, is the Episcopal Bishop of Alabama. Is there any communication at the present time between the thinking members of both races? That's our biggest weakness. It's probably due to the fact that the, the Negro is not able to talk in any terms of less than complete integration. Uh, the white man is not willing to talk in terms of complete integration. Uh, the gradual approach has been pretty well shelved for the time, and it's very difficult 
to have the communication which we greatly need. I think we are earnestly trying to find answers uh, to this situation. We, 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 we're in a situation. We know it. It came too quickly. Uh, there are many of us who, um, and I say us because I, I'm that group who were working along pretty satisfactorily, we thought, before the Supreme Court decision. Uh, we felt we were making progress in the relationship between the races. I think we were. We've been sat back. Mrs. Cecil Roberts, Birmingham's best-known civic and cultural leader. Mrs. Roberts, how is the gap between the two races going to be closed in Birmingham? Well, it's going to take a lot of common sense. Common sense on both sides, and uh, there must be compromise on both sides. Neither side, one side can't keep all it wants to keep. The other side can't get all it wants to get. Certainly not immediately. Anyway, there's got to be giving and taking. There's got to be communication between the two people. Uh, there's got to be uh, an understanding of my point of view. There's got to be an understanding of their, someone else's problem. And until I think there is a communication, there's a willingness to compromise, there's a willingness to give and to take, uh, we'll have a serious problem here. One of the central pivots of the Birmingham story should be heard from at this point, but Police Commissioner Eugene Bull Connor has remained unavailable. Of him, Time magazine has stated, in the death of leadership, the silence of fear, the bomb blasts of hatred, Birmingham is the toughest city in the South and is likely to get tougher. It is also why the voice of a police chief, Bull Connor, has emerged as the voice of one of the great cities of the United States. If Bull Connor is unwilling to talk, Birmingham is willing to talk about Bull Connor. But I think perhaps Mr. Connor is a much more honest man than, than most of us. He puts in the print and says out loud, uh, in no uncertain terms, the way he feels about things. Whereas too much restraint, I believe, is shown by the general populace on these same lines. And so I think we do owe him gratitude in the fact that he does reflect the way we think. And I think he's right there before us every day as a reminder of what this community is actually standing for in the public eye. Mrs. Leon C. Palmer, a churchwoman, does what few people do in Birmingham, criticize Bull Connor. How does, the, how does uh, Bull Connor campaign for office? Does he campaign on his, uh, as an avid segregationist? Oh, he's going to fight, the, fight against, he's not going to have integration. He'll fight the Supreme Court and fight the Attorney General, going to fight everybody. And he was, why do you care? what happens? And I said, because I'm an American citizen. We wouldn't have any government if we didn't have a Supreme Court and didn't have some laws. And I'm, I'm for law and order, and uh, we can work it out some way, but we can't if we're defying law. And then I said, Bull, I am so sick and tired of you jumping up and yelling nigger, nigger every time you want some votes that I'm going to fight you to a finish. Aren't you afraid of Bull Connor? I'm afraid of Bull Connor? No. That's amusing. <laughs> Vincent Townsend, editor of the Birmingham News, a member of the Newhouse chain. There's been really no uh, real disturbances in Birmingham, and uh, I believe uh, people in Birmingham believe that the Commissioner of Public Safety means exactly what he says, that 
he is not going to uh, permit uh, any agents of turmoil, whether they are white or Negro, to cause uh, uh, breaches of the peace in Birmingham. In fairness, it should be said that Editor Townsend's newspaper, The Birmingham News, which supported Commissioner Connor in the recent primary, this week criticized him for failing to prevent the violence in the Birmingham bus terminal. CBS reports Who Speaks for Birmingham continues immediately after this pause for station identification. CBS reports Who Speaks for Birmingham continues. Here again is Howard K. Smith. The whites regret that there is no communication with the Negroes, but they have no objection to the continued segregation of all activities, including education. They acknowledge the toughness of the Commissioner of Public Safety, Eugene Bull Connor, but they support him. They claim that although there has been violence in Birmingham, it has been exaggerated by the northern press. And to a man, the whites see nothing but greatness in Birmingham's future. What about the 235,000 Negroes of Birmingham? I served in World War II for 42 months. There I was wounded, shipwrecked. I was only one out of ten that was saved. I served in, they call it the police action, the Cold Real War. I was in reserve and I was called back. Both of my leg was broke, my foot got 16 stitches across my stomach one way and 14 another. My face is plaster surgery and I got a plate in my head. Since that I come back, my home is in Birmingham. I was born here. Since I come back and joined the Alabama Christian Movement for Human Rights, trying to bring about a community of brother love, I have been taken out by evil men, have been beaten with change until the blood run down. I have been laughed at by the policemen who should have been looking for the men who had taken me out and did these things unto me. I don't have no envy in my heart, no malice against no white man or no black man. I believe that through our fight here that we're going to bring both races close together. There are a lot of people here who are afraid, black and white, to speak out because they're afraid they may lose something. But I have nothing to lose but my life. And I think now that the Lord has given me enough and I'm living on borrowed time now. I'm a minister yeah. who was arrested and sentenced to serve six months at hard labor and fined $500 for preaching the truth, telling the congregation of which I am the pastor that God created all men equal. I was placed in jail, handcuffed, locked in the truck, got out on bond, and every Sunday, carloads of policemen would sit around at the church. Reverend C. Herbert Oliver, president of the Greater Birmingham Council of Human Relations, an organization attempting to improve race relations. Reverend Oliver, are the Negro members of this community harassed in any fashion? Well, last February, I wrote uh, a letter to the Birmingham News, and the paper published the letter. 
What does the letter say? I criticized the governor for some statements that he had made in Washington concerning uh, voting Negroes in Alabama. And after the letter was published that night, I began to receive a number of threatening phone calls. People asking, what kind of fertilizer do you want to make your, do you want us to make your children of? And that young niggers make good fertilizer. All ones are t pretty tough. At the height of this, how many phone calls were there a day and night? I would guess at the height of it, there were about 20 to 30 a night. Is it usually a male voice or a female voice? Mostly male voices, and few of the callers who called me used obscenities. They... Has your wife ever answered the phone? Yes, she answers it most of the time. I'm a child. I have been arrested for sitting in in Cress's department store. I am on probation, probation until I'm 18 years old. I was dragged off to jail in August. My dress was torn because they handled me so roughly. They wouldn't even tell me that I was under arrest, but just pulled me until one of the nice policemen said, yes, you are under arrest, and took me on. Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth of the Bethel Baptist Church is the Negro feared most by the white citizens of Birmingham. A militant leader, he has a faithful following. He has been the target of a mob, two bombings, and a long history of harassment. Reverend Shuttlesworth is the voice of the Negro in Birmingham who no longer is willing to wait for the whites to make a move toward equality of the races. For the privilege of leading his people, he has paid a heavy penalty. Reverend Shuttlesworth, what is life like for you in Birmingham? Well, life for me, it's pretty difficult if uh, I could use that expression. I have to have somebody guard my home at uh, night, been for four years, the police won't do it. Uh, it causes your family, wife and children, to go through uh, severe strain and so forth. But we've learned to make out on it. We, we, we found out that if you can't take it, you can't make it. There have been two bombings there, and life is a struggle here for me in Birmingham, but it's a glorious struggle. Uh, would you care to tell us about the two bombings? <laughs> the first bombing was in... Uh, December 1956, Christmas night, when uh, somebody planted 12 sticks of dynamite uh, between the church and the house where it was then. About that space, and you have to turn sideways to walk between. Uh, the dynamite was placed right at the corner of the church and the corner of the house. And that's where the head of my bed was, and I was in the bed. So that it blew the wall that was between my head and the dynamite away, it blew the floor from underneath the bed. We never did find where the sprain went to. The front columns were blown into the street, and the roof came down, yet I didn't get a scratch. So I said that I was saved to lead the fight. Reverend Shuttlesworth, how many times have you been beaten? Well, physically, uh, I've been mobbed once, uh, badly. I faced I have faced two mobs in this city. And, of course, I have no doubt that I would have been beaten in the jails upon one of my arrests. 
but for the fact that there were several more men arrested with me. Some of the whites really wanted to get to me. Uh, I had no fear, however. When you say you were badly beaten, how badly? Uh, quite badly. This, the first time I saw brass knuckles, I was being struck with them. Uh, this mob had uh, chains, brass knuckles, sticks, and other things in front of Phillips High School in September '57 when we went down and tried to enroll the children. And this wrist was almost broken, and I was knocked to the ground, oh, I guess five or six times. I was kicked. My face was terrifically scarred. The skin was all off my ears. My knees were badly scuffed up. Uh, I have scars now that are visible behind here, one or two in my head, one there. Now, you're conscious that they're trying to kill you. And really, this mob at this time weren't just trying to beat me up. They were trying to kill me. You see, actually, a mob is so bent on doing harm till they are not composed. And it's amazing how weak a person is who is a mob at the time. My own personal feelings, I think that you won't get, is you feel sorry. You, you don't understand how men, otherwise calm, peaceable men, whether they be white or otherwise, uh, could act worse than raving beasts, could just want blood, and no matter how they do, and they realize that the cameras were there, they realized they were being seen, but they, their, their hopes were to kill me to get me. So you see, I've been near death three times in Birmingham, so. Reverend, would you mind giving us your feelings about the police commissioner of the city of Birmingham? Well, Mr. Connor has a rough voice, and he used to announce baseball. He has a kind of a voice that's not smooth. And uh, he takes pride in being rough. He takes pride in talking to people roughly. Even white people. I've been down the commission and he talked to some of those white people worse than he talked to me or anybody else. And he wants the white people to believe that just by his being in office, he can prevent the inevitable. So he has to talk loud. He has to be loud because when the sound and fury is all gone, then there'll be nothing. There'll be emptiness. Reverend Shuttlesworth, how many times have you been arrested? I've been arrest arrested at least four, three or four times. I've been in jail quite a few times. And, of course, uh, don't let it worry. I'm involved at the moment in 14 lawsuits, including <laughs> three with the Times, or four with the Times. And my children were arrested in Gaston. Of course, I have several suits here in Birmingham. Uh, we mean to kill segregation, uh, be killed by it. The hope of the future for the Negroes rests primarily in their young people. Miles College, staffed by and restricted to Negroes, is one of two such colleges in Birmingham. Its president is Reverend Lucius Pitts, recently of Atlanta. What are the facts about education in Birmingham? Well, let's quote them. It's so much better than it used to be. And this is true. So much better. But I would venture to say that education in, in Birmingham is like it is in most of the South. Um, that the inadequacy of in, in Negro education would astound the average white man if he knew it. You pass a new a, a, a building that looks adequate on the outside, but to go inside and check the scientific equipment, the uh, the library equipment, 
the teacher load, uh, the cafeteria, or the lack of a health and physical education building, this kind of thing. And then you go across the street. Well, I say figuratively across the street. And, and, and it is much more nearly adequate. I would think really that education for nobody in, in the South is adequate in terms of, and this is partially because we haven't had interest in the South. Sir, you've raised a family in the South. What are the problems of a parent uh, with Negro children? How do the children learn? How do they learn they're different? Well, uh, my experience with my own children, with other children when I have taught, that some things they learn slowly and other things uh, have to be knocked into them. And then some things they learn almost abruptly. Um, <clears throat> it's a painful thing. Welcome back, and uh, that was Voices uh, from six decades ago, 1963, uh, in Birmingham, Alabama. The atmosphere surrounding the bombing of the 16th Street uh, Baptist Church, which occurred 60 years ago uh, yesterday on September 15th, 2023. That's going to conclude our program uh, for today, the Pan-African Journal worldwide radio broadcast if you'd like to have access to this program go to the pan-african radio network and that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash pan-african journal that's blogtalkradio.com forward slash pan-african journal if you'd like to read the pan-african newswire all you need to do is go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com Dot com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, we're going to close out uh, with the music of the legendary jazz trumpeter, Kenny Durham. This is taken from a 1955 release entitled Afro-Cuban. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week. <laughs> Thank you.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.